please, while they can still hear you, let's give it up one more time for Danny McDavid and the Gatcher College Chorus. Good evening, I'm Jose Antonio Bowen, president of Goucher College. It's my pleasure to welcome all of you here for tonight's presentation by Michelle Alexander. Ms. Alexander's talk is being presented tonight as part of the Roselle C. Thompson Lectureship Series, which was established in 1979 by law clerks and bailiffs who had served with Judge Roselle C. Thompson, trustee emeritus of Goucher, in Judge Thompson's honor. The fund was further augmented by gifts given in Judge Thompson's memory at the time of his death and in memory of his wife, Caroline Wolf Thompson, Goucher class of 1924. We are fortunate to have with us here tonight George Thompson, Judge Thompson's son, and a trustee emeritus of Goucher College, and George's wife, Mary Ellen. Please help me thank them for tonight's presentation. This event is also the last featured event of Goucher's theme semester titled Civil Rights, Past, Present, Future. Since the start of the new year, members of the campus community have been exploring the historical events, political acts, and policy decisions that provide the context for a contemporary debate on civil rights. Some of you may have been able to join us for the other featured theme semester presentations by Colin Powell or Freeman Harbowski, and to bookend the theme the theme semester, our commencement speaker this year will be the legendary civil rights activist, John Lewis, who will be here next month. <laughs> Lucky seniors. Now let me say a bit about tonight's featured speaker. Michelle Alexander is a highly acclaimed civil rights lawyer, advocate, legal scholar, and New York Times best-selling author. In recent years, she has taught at a number of universities, including Stanford Law School, her alma mater, where she was an associate professor of law and directed the civil rights clinics. In 2005, Ms. Alexander accepted a joint appointment at the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at the Moritz College of Law at The Ohio State University. Also in 2005, she won a Soros Justice Fellowship, which supported the writing of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness which has received rare, rave reviews and has been featured in print and broadcast media outlets all around the country. The book also won the 2001 NAACP Image Award for Best Nonfiction Book. Many of us here at Goucher share Ms. Alexander's concerns about racial inequities in law enforcement and the criminal justice system. We are working to turn our commitment to these important issues into action through such programs as our own Goucher Prison Education Partnership which gives men and women incarcerated in Maryland the opportunity to pursue a Goucher College education while in prison. Prior to entering academia, Ms. Alexander served as the director of the Racial Justice Project for the ACLU of Northern California. 
In addition to her nonprofit advocacy, Ms. Alexander has worked as a litigator at private law firms specializing in class action lawsuits alleging race and gender discrimination. Following her lecture this evening, there'll be a brief Q&A. As always, our students will have first priority in asking questions. We'll have microphones on either side, and after we've had a few student questions, um, I'll open it up to everyone. Students, you're also invited to participate in a talkback discussion hosted by the Gatcher College Peace House in the Pinkard Room of the Athenaeum following this evening's talk. Ms. Alexander has also graciously agreed to sign copies of her book, The New Jim Crow, from here on the stage after the main presentation. You'll also be able to purchase copies of the book here in the auditorium after the presentation wraps up. Please join me in welcoming Michelle Alexander to Goucher College. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So so glad to be here tonight. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be surrounded by so many people of conscience, people who are willing to engage in meaningful dialogue about the state of race and justice in America. I've been thinking about what I want to say tonight, and I've concluded that there's really only one place to begin this dialogue tonight, and that's right where Freddie Gray took his last breath. If you've been living in a cave for the past 24 hours, you might not know that a 25-year-old black man, Freddie Gray of Baltimore, died as a result of injuries that occurred in police custody and apparent broken neck and severed spine. Now, there are a lot of unanswered questions about Freddie Gray's death, but what we do know is that it all began when the police spotted him on the street, made eye contact with him, and then Freddie decided to run. Over and over again, people ask me, why run when you see the police? The people who ask this question are overwhelmingly white. In their world, they expect to be treated reasonably by the police and feel that unless they have something to hide, there's no reason to run. But there is another America. And in this other America, people fear the police as much as any gang. The police are viewed with reason as members of a legal gang, a gang that wears badges instead of tattoos, and that can wield power with impunity, stopping, frisking, searching, with little or no cause. They're authorized to shoot first and ask questions later. And their version of the story, no matter how implausible, is almost always accepted as the truth, unless, unless they happen to be caught on video shooting an unarmed, black man in the back as he runs away, Walter Scott. Now, Freddie Gray had reason to run. He had had numerous run-ins with the police before. He had a criminal record for drug offenses 
and was most likely unable to find work in the legal economy as a result. He knew that nothing but trouble could come from another stop, another interrogation, another search or detention. And so he saw the cops and thought, let me get out of here. Little did he know he would not escape alive. We do not know what happened in that police van and why a man who the police say was arrested without use of force and without incident left the police van with a broken neck and severed spine and slipped into a coma from which he would never emerge. We don't know what happened, but we're here because we know black lives matter. Freddie Gray's life mattered. Walter Scott's life mattered. Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, John Crawford, the list can go on and on and on of the lives that mattered but didn't. As I was getting ready to leave my hotel tonight and come to this event, I saw news images, images of protests in Baltimore streets holding the familiar signs, making the familiar demands. I saw the hurt and the pain and the rage, and I am hurt and angry too. But I want us to pause and take a deep breath tonight and ask ourselves some big questions. Over the years, I have found that too often in our reaction to these predictable tragedies and in our rush to judgment and our rush to speak or take action and just do something, say something, do something, we skip that crucial, all-important step of asking the question, what is the truth? Not just the facts of who said what or who did what or what came first or later, not just the data and the statistics and the cost of this or that. Not the debate about what the witnesses saw. Was his arms raised high or low? Did the officer wait one second or five seconds before pulling the trigger? No, I mean, what is the truth? The deeper truth. The truth that holds the power to transform, to awaken, to shake the foundations and allow something new and beautiful to burst forth. As we think about Freddie Gray, as we think of the millions who have lost their lives to this criminal injustice system as they cycle in and out of our prisons and jails, trapped in a closed circuit of perpetual marginality, let's pause long enough to ask, what is the whole truth, the deep meaning here? And once we begin to glimpse the truth, it's not enough just to hold in our minds and play around with it like some kind of intellectual jigsaw puzzle. If we're to make our lives useful, if we are to be worthy of this magnificent gift we call life, then we better get serious about sharing the fruits of the truth. I would go so far as to say we must be the fruits of the truth. Now, we're all gathered here tonight to discuss race and justice in America, and I'm sorry to say that the truth is painful, profoundly painful, so painful that so many of us are likely to want to turn away, change the subject, change the channel, talk about something, anything else. It's a truth that at times can seem so big and so monstrous, so such radical implications for our personal lives, as well as the structure of our society as a whole, that the temptation can be overwhelming to deny the truth. 
to imagine that there isn't much that any one of us can really do anyway, and that everything is going to be just fine if we just hold on or wait for the news cycle to shift. Eventually, all those images of the tear gas, the riot gear, the looting, the children with their arms raised saying, don't shoot, don't shoot, will just fade away. If we just wait long enough, surely it will all pass. But here's the truth about the truth. It never goes away. It always comes back, resurfacing in new forms, sometimes masquerading in different guises. But it always shows up again, daring us to face it. So will we face it? Will we face the truth, speak the truth in this time, in this age? Here's another truth about the truth. In every time and in every age, there are those who deny the truth and those who courageously confront it and do their best to rise to the challenge that moment in history presents. I remember when I was a kid in school, I was so ashamed and demoralized whenever the teachers would start talking about slavery or Jim Crow. The textbooks would show images of black people chained in the bottom of slave ships and being whipped or hung from trees. I saw pictures of the whites-only signs and read about the fact that people like me were forced to sit at the back of the bus. My teacher said they wanted us to see these pictures, see these images, to learn the truth about slavery and segregation, the horror of it all. But my teachers, as well-intentioned as many of them were, did not teach the whole truth. They taught about the pain and the suffering and the cruelty, the dehumanization, but they didn't say much about the courage, the resistance, the love that endured, the songs that were born in cotton fields, and the magnificent movements led by people who could barely read, could not vote, people who were thought to be less than human. As Dr. Vincent Harding has eloquently written, there is a river. There is a river of courage and love and rebellion and creative nonviolent action. A beautiful river runs through it all. And that's the truth, the whole truth. So I think the question for us now, as we gather tonight, is whether we are going to face the truth of our times and join that beautiful river, that raucous, sometimes dangerous river, or not. Are we willing to join that river and widen that river so it eventually engulfs us all, carrying us downstream to a place we all belong, or not? Now, I know many of us may not be quite ready to dive in all the way right now, and that's fine. I myself played around for a long time on the riverbank. But here's my question. Are your toes even touching the water? If they are, are you willing to take a few more steps in? And if you're standing back with your arms crossed, my question is this. Are you going to live your whole life on the shore, insisting you already know how to swim? I seriously doubt that I have the courage of Ella Baker or Bob Moses or Martin Luther King Jr. I wish I did, but I doubt it. But when I ask myself if I can take one more step into that river, I find the answer is almost always yes, one more step. So that's what I'm asking all of us tonight. Together, let's take one more step into the river, the river of truth, love, courage, and justice, the river that runs through it all still. Isabel Wilkerson, the author of The Warmth of Other Suns, recently published an excellent essay in The Guardian 
pointing out the parallels between the police violence of today and the lynchings of an era supposedly long gone. She writes, quote, not terribly long ago, in a country that many people misremember if they knew it at all, a black person was killed in public every four days for often the most mundane of infractions, for taking a hog, making boastful remarks, for stealing 75 cents. For the most banal of missteps, the penalty could be an hours-long spectacle of torture and lynching. No trial, no jury, no judge, no appeal. Now, well into a new century, as a family in Ferguson, Missouri, buries yet another American teenager killed at the hands of authorities, the rate of police killings of black Americans is nearly the same as the rate of lynchings in the early decades of the 20th century. Let me repeat that. Today, in the era of Obama, the rate of police killings of black Americans is nearly the same as the rate of lynchings in the Jim Crow era. Isabel Wilkerson acknowledges that there are many differences between the violence of the past and what happens today, but she is quite right that there are important parallels. Images and stereotypes built into American culture since the days of slavery have mutated, changing form over time. As she puts it so plainly, quote, last century's beast and savage have become this century's gangbanger and thug embedding a pre-written script for subconscious bias that primes many to accept what they are programmed to believe about black Americans, whether they are aware of it or not, end quote. Today, police killings are the ugliest reflection of a much larger system of racial and social control. Just as lynchings in the old Jim Crow were not the only thing wrong with the Jim Crow system, but merely the ugliest, most brutal reflection of that system. Today, the police killings of unarmed black men and the little or no justice which follows is merely the ugliest reflection of a much, much larger system of racial and social control. On the news tonight, the media reported over and over again that Freddie Gray was a criminal. He had a long criminal record and he was in a high crime neighborhood. The police had reason to suspect him, reason to chase him, they say. He was a criminal after all. This is said, of course, so that we might distance ourselves from him. Imagine his life as less valuable. It is easy for us to forget, I think, that we are all criminals. We're all sinners, all seriously flawed. The fact that we believe that some lives matter more, that some people are worth caring about and others are not, and that some communities defined mostly by race and class are places worth saving while others are not, that belief system, the belief that some people just don't matter and are disposable, and that you can tell who those people are often just by looking at them. Those false beliefs have birthed yet again a system of extraordinary cruelty and control, a system that one day we will be ashamed of, much like we are ashamed of slavery and Jim Crow. We may now say that we are all colorblind and that the days of caste and oppression are long gone, but the truth is there for us to see if we are willing to face it. 
I've been doing a lot of traveling in recent months, meeting with advocates around the country and engaging in discussions and dialogues with communities that have had enough, who are eager to wake up, get up, face the truth, and take a stand. I've been meeting with some extraordinary people who, moved by their own faith, their own conscience or conviction, are finding their own voice and doing the hard work of organizing for justice in their communities. But I've also been forced to accept that most people of all colors are still asleep. If you watch Fox News, you're probably asleep. <laughs> if you think the real problem is that kids need to just pull up their pants and stay in school, you're asleep. As Michael Brown's mother told a TV station, a local TV station, just days after her son's death, it took an extraordinary effort to keep Michael Brown in school and on the path to college. She looked at the reporter and said, quote, you know how many black men graduate? Not many, because you bring them down to this type of level where they feel like they don't got nothing to live for anyway. If you think we can fix our schools without ending the wars that have been declared on our communities, you're still asleep asleep to the magnitude of the crisis faced by communities of color, by the wars declared on them, the wars on drugs, the wars on crime, the war on poverty. These wars morphed, as all wars do, into a war on the poor. Most are still asleep to the system of mass incarceration, asleep to the moral dimensions, the spiritual dimensions of a system that is predicated on burying the poorest and most vulnerable under a pile of stones. Denying to God's children the very forms of compassion, forgiveness, hope, and redemption that we claim to cherish. So many are asleep, sound asleep. Now, of course, I'm always eager to admit that my own awakening did not happen overnight. As I describe in the introduction to my book, there was a time when I strenuously resisted the very claims that I make in the book and rejected the cause that has now become the purpose and passion of my life. In fact, the first time that I encountered the idea that our criminal justice system might be functioning much like a caste system, I was rushing to catch the bus in Oakland, California, and a bright orange poster stapled to a telephone pole caught my eye. And on it, it said in large, bold print, the drug war is the new Jim Crow. And I paused and scanned the text of the flyer for a few minutes, and I saw that some radical community group was holding a meeting several blocks away in a church. They were organizing to protest the expansion of the prison system in California, the three strikes law, the drug war, racial profiling, police brutality. The list went on and on. And I remember pausing and looking at that flyer and thinking, yeah, you know, our criminal justice system is racist in a lot of ways, but doesn't help to make absurd comparisons to Jim Crow. People just think you're crazy. And then I crossed the street, <laughs> hopped on the bus, headed to my new job as director of the Racial Justice Project for the ACLU. <laughs> well, when I began my job at the ACLU, I understood that there were problems of conscious and unconscious bias and stereotyping. That's why I decided to become a civil rights lawyer after all. But I thought it was my job to just join with other advocates and try to root out racial bias whenever and wherever it reared its ugly head. I was raised on and believed that common narrative that was told that 
story we hear on MLK Day once a year, every year, that we're all on the right path. We just have a long way to go. But after years of representing victims of racial profiling and police brutality and investigating patterns of drug law enforcement in poor communities of color and attempting to assist people who have been released from prison as they faced one closed door after another, I had a series of experiences that began my awakening. I began to awaken to the reality that our criminal justice system now functions much more like a system of racial and social control than a system of crime prevention and control. There was one experience in particular that really opened my eyes. At the time, I was directing the Racial Justice Project, and we had just launched a major campaign against racial profiling by the police. We called it the DWB campaign, or the Driving While Black or Brown campaign. And we had sued the California Highway Patrol for racial profiling and their drug interdiction practices, but we were looking to sue some other police departments around California as well, police departments about which we had received complaints of discriminatory tactics and practices. So we set up a hotline number for people to call if they believe they've been stopped or targeted by the police on the basis of race. We put up this hotline number on billboards in Oakland and San Jose and communities around California urging people to call the hotline number if they believe they've been stopped or searched by the police for no apparent reason other than race. And so I was spending my day, a long day, interviewing one young black or brown man after another who had called the hotline to report discrimination by the police. And this young man comes walking into my office. He's about 19 years old. He's carrying a stack of papers about this thick. He had taken detailed notes of his encounters with the police over about a nine-month period of time in Oakland. He had detailed notes of every stop, every frisk, every search, every time a car he was driving or was riding in was pulled over, stopped or searched, every time he was made to lie spread eagle on the sidewalk, he had descriptions of every encounter. He had names of officers, in some cases even badge numbers. He had names of witnesses who was with them on that street that day, who was in the car. Just an unbelievable amount of documentation and detail of a pattern of police stops and harassment that had been occurring over a nine-month period of time. And I started to think, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's our dream plaintiff, the one we've been waiting for. You know, we were planning to file a class action suit against the Oakland Police Department alleging racial profiling. Maybe he can be our lead plaintiff. He was a good-looking young man and well-spoken, and I thought the media will love him. He'll do well in front of a jury. And then he said something that made me pause. And I said, what did you say? What did you just say? Did you just say you're a felon? Did you say you're a drug felon? We had actually been screening people with prior criminal records. When people would call our hotline number, we would send a form to them to fill out, asking them a bunch of questions about their experiences with the police, including, have you ever been convicted of a felony? We believed we couldn't possibly represent someone convicted of a felony as a named plaintiff in a racial profiling suit because we knew that if we did, law enforcement and the media would be all over us saying, well, of course, the police should be keeping their eye on him. He's a felon. He's a criminal. It's not about race. It's about going after the criminals. And we knew that we couldn't put someone with 
a felony record on the stand without exposing them to cross-examination in front of the jury for an hour about their prior criminal history, thus deflecting the jury's attention away from the police conduct and turning it into a mini-trial about this young man's criminal past. So we had been screening people with prior criminal records, and this young man had not, you know, checked the box. So I'm sitting there saying, are, are, you, are you telling me you're a felon? You're a drug felon? And he gets quiet for a while. He's staring down the table, and then he finally looks up and looks me right in the eye, and he says, yeah, yeah, I'm a felon. But let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what happened to me. The police set me up. They planted drugs on me, and they beat up me and my friend. He starts telling me this whole story about how he was framed and drugs were planted on him, and he was beat up by the police. And I just like, oh, no, 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 no. I am sorry. I am sorry. But I, I just cannot represent you if you have a felony record. I tried to explain why that was the case, and I understood how it could seem unfair, but I was just sorry. There was nothing I could do. And he becomes more and more agitated, now trying to give me more facts and details about that case and the names of those officers and where I can get information. And I was like, I am, I am so sorry. He keeps telling me, no, I'm telling you I'm, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I just, I just took the plea because I was scared. I just took the plea because they told me if, if I, I just take the plea, they'd give me just felony probation. I could just walk right out of there with, with felony probation. But if I try to fight this thing, I could be looking at, you know, 10, 15, 20 years behind bars. So I just took the plea. I just took the plea. I'm telling you I'm innocent. And I said, I am sorry, but I cannot represent you. And then he becomes enraged, and he says to me, you're no better than the police. You're no better than the police. The minute I tell you I'm a felon, you just stop listening. You can't even hear what I have to say. He says, what's to become of me? What's to become of me? He says, you know I can't get a job anywhere because of my felony record anywhere. What's to become of me? He says, do you know I can't even get into public housing can't even get access to public housing because of my felony record. He says, I have to sleep in my grandma's basement at night because nowhere else will take me in. He said, do you know I can't even get food stamps? Food? Because of my drug felony? How am I supposed to feed myself? How am I supposed to take care of myself as a man? He said, good luck finding one young black man in my neighborhood they haven't gotten to yet. They've gotten to us all already. With that, he snatches all of those handwritten notes up and just starts ripping them up into tiny little pieces, throwing them in the air. He walks out of my office yelling at me, you're no better than the police. I can't believe I trusted you. Well, several months after that, I was doing public access TV. Yes, public access TV. Broadcasting live out of his neighborhood. I was doing public access TV that night because... We were trying to organize several thousand people to turn out to a major demonstration to protest the governor's refusal to sign racial profiling legislation. And we had been holding town hall meetings up and down the state and launched a big media campaign. And we we're trying to urge people, to, thousands of people, to turn out and to demand that the governor sign the legislation. And so the demonstration was just a couple days away. And so we we're doing public access TV broadcasting live from his neighborhood, urging people to get on the bus and go to the demonstration. Well, the minute the show goes off the air, he comes bursting into the studio carrying a dirty potted plant, and he's emotional, practically on the verge of tears, and he comes running up to me, and he says, I'm, I'm just here to tell you I'm sorry. I'm sorry for how I treated you. I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. I shouldn't, shouldn't have treated you like that. I've been seeing you on the news. I've been seeing you out there trying to fight for our people, trying to do the right thing, and I shouldn't have treated you like that. 
said, I would have bought you some flowers, but I still don't got no money. I snatched this plant off my grandma's front porch. Here. Hands me this pot, turns around, goes running out of the building. I go chasing after him. He jumps into this broke-down car and disappears. Well, several months after that, I'm in my office, open up the newspaper. What's on the front page? Well, the Oakland Writers police scandal is broken. Turns out that a gang of police officers, otherwise known as a drug task force, had been planning drugs on suspects, beating folks up in his neighborhood, and who's identified as one of the main officers charged with planning drugs on suspects and beating folks up? The officer he had identified to me as having planted drugs on him and beat up him and his friend. And it was only then that the light bulb finally started to go on for me, and I realized, he's right about me. I am no better than the police. The minute he told me he was a felon, I just stopped listening. I couldn't even hear what he had to say. That was the beginning of me asking myself some hard questions as a civil rights lawyer and advocate. How am I actually replicating many of the forms of discrimination, marginalization, and exclusion that I'm supposedly fighting against. And it was also the beginning of me asking some much bigger and much harder questions about the system as a whole. Why was it really that we hadn't been able to find one young black man in his neighborhood they hadn't gotten to yet? What was really going on? And that was the beginning of my journey, of asking myself and others a lot of hard questions, of doing an enormous amount of research, and listening more carefully to the stories of those cycling in and out of prison. And what I learned in that process was that, you know, my great crime wasn't simply in refusing to represent an innocent man. My great crime was in imagining that there was some path to racial or social justice that does not include those we view as guilty. And I learned some facts that blew my mind. I learned there are more African-American adults under correctional control today in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. I learned more black men were disenfranchised today than in 1870, the year the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. Of course, during the old Jim Crow era, poll taxes and literacy tests operated to keep black folks from the polls. Well, today, felon disenfranchisement laws in many states accomplished what poll taxes and literacy tests ultimately could not. I learned that in many large urban areas today, more than half of working age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. As I wrote in the introduction to my book, what has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow has less to do with the basic structure of our society than the language we use to justify it. In the era of colorblindness, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So we don't. Rather than rely on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals and then engage in all the practices we supposedly left behind. 
Today, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, exclusion from jury service, suddenly legal. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. Now, I've given a lot of thought to how and why we've been lulled to sleep in recent years, how we've become so indifferent to the suffering of millions. And the reasons are numerous, I think, but among the most important are the images of great racial progress, images that reinforce the sense that those who have been left behind, those who are stuck at the bottom, those who are cycling in and out of our prisons and jails find themselves there for reasons that can be fairly described as their own fault. We hear a common narrative, not only in the mainstream media, but in many black churches. If only black men would get it together and do right. Pull up their pants, stay in school, get a job, do right by their kids, be a man, be a father, stay away from drugs, just act right. Then, then none of this would be happening. This whole system of mass incarceration wouldn't even be a problem for black folks if they would just act right. We hear this in the media. If only he had turned his music down. If only he hadn't argued with that officer. There's a sense, even among many black folks, that sadly, sadly, we've just brought this all on ourselves. And this perception allows waves and waves of shame and punitiveness to wash over our communities, waves that meet little resistance. Paradoxically, the election of President Barack Obama, far from reflecting the genuine liberation of black people in the United States, actually rationalizes, in some respects, our collective indifference to those locked up and locked out. You flick on the television set, and there is President Barack Obama standing in the Rose Garden, looking handsome, dignified, and in charge. Flip the channel again, and there's Michelle Obama, first lady, you know, digging a garden in the backyard of the White House, not as a servant or a slave or as a maid, but as the first lady schooling our nation on better health and being good stewards of the planet. Flip the channel again, and there's the whole Obama family descending the stairs of Air Force One, waving to the crowd cheered around the world. Well, if a black man can be president of the United States today, what is wrong with you, brother, in handcuffs on your way to jail? If Obama can make it, why not you? What's wrong with you, Michael Brown? Why do you have that attitude? What's wrong with you, Freddie Gray? Why run from the police when you see him? What's wrong with you, Eric Gardner? Why are you selling untaxed cigarettes? I say the deeper, more pressing question is what is wrong with us? How could we have remained silent for so long as a penal system unprecedented in world history was born? One that was aimed at the poorest, most disadvantaged among us. Now, I find that when I tell people that mass incarceration, I believe mass incarceration amounts to a new Jim Crow, I'm still met with just shocked disbelief. People say, well, how can you say that a racial caste system exists? Just look at Barack Obama. Just look at Oprah Winfrey. Just look at Colin Powell. Our criminal justice system isn't a system 
of racial control, it's a system of crime control. And if black folks would just stop committing so many crimes, then they wouldn't have to worry about being locked up and then stripped of their basic civil and human rights. But therein lies the greatest myth about mass incarceration, that it's been driven by crime and crime rates. It's just not true. It's not true. Our nation's prison population quintupled in a 30-year period of time. Quintupled, not doubled or tripled, quintupled. We went from a prison population in the 1970s, about 300,000, to now we have more than 2 million people behind bars. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. But this cannot be explained by crime rates. During that 30-year period of time when, crime, when our prison population exploded, crime rates fluctuated. They went up, they went down, went back up again. Went down again, went back up, then down, and then down, down, down. And today, as bad as crime rates are in many parts of the country, crime rates nationally are at historical lows. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates in this country have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime was going up or going down in any given community or the nation as a whole. So what explains this sudden explosion in incarceration rates, the birth of a penal system unlike anything the world had ever seen, if not crime or crime rates? Well, the answer is the war on drugs and the get tough movement, the wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States on the heels of the civil rights movement. It's been a literal war. You know, many people across America reacted with shock when they saw military equipment being rolled out into the streets of Ferguson, a small town. Military equipment trained on nonviolent protesters. People didn't realize is that military equipment exists today in American cities large and small because we have been at war with our own people now for decades. Beginning in the 1980s with the declaration of Ronald Reagan's drug war, the Pentagon has been shipping tanks and automatic machine guns and other military equipment, grenades, to local police departments, even small ones, so that it can be used in routine drug law enforcement. SWAT teams are not used to execute arrest warrants in minor, low-level cases where people are suspected of nothing more than mere possession of a small amount of drugs in suburban communities. No, but with some regularity, SWAT teams are rolled into communities of color, poor communities of color, simply to execute a drug arrest for possession of marijuana. There has been a literal war. And it's difficult to overstate the contribution of the drug war and the war mentality to mass incarceration in America. Drug convictions alone accounted for about two-thirds of the increase in the federal prison system and more than half of the increase in the state prison system between 1985 and 2000, the period of our prison system's most dramatic expansion. Drug convictions have increased more than 1,000% since the drug war began. I mean, to get a sense of how large a contribution the drug war has made to mass incarceration, consider this. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. 
Now, most Americans violate drug laws in their lifetime. Most do. But the enemy in this war has been racially defined. The drug war, not by accident, has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color, even though studies consistently show and have shown for decades that contrary to popular belief, people of color are no more likely to use or sell or sell illegal drugs than whites. In fact, much of the research suggests that white youth are more likely to engage in illegal drug dealing than black youth. But that's not what you would guess by taking a peek inside our nation's prisons and jails, which have been overflowing with black and brown drug offenders. In some states, African Americans have constituted 80 to 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison. Now, I find that many people are willing co to concede these racial disparities once they see the data, even so that they insist that the drug war has a benign motive. It's motivated over concern about violent crime, they say. It makes sense to go to war against them in ghetto communities, because that's where the violent offenders can be found, the drug kingpins. But the truth is this drug war, this war, has never been focused on rooting out violent offenders or drug kingpins. Federal funding in this war has flowed to those agencies that increased dramatically the sheer numbers of drug arrests. It's been a numbers game. And federal drug forfeiture laws for years have allowed state and local law enforcement agencies to keep for their own use up to 80% of the cash, cars, homes seized from suspected drug offenders. You don't have to be convicted of a drug offense. In fact, most aren't. Just suspected of a drug offense. And your cash, your car, your home can be seized from you. And law enforcement is allowed to keep it. Thus, giving law enforcement a direct monetary interest, not in ending drug abuse or drug addiction, but in the longevity of the drug war itself. Now, the Attorney General Eric Holder has announced that there will be some reforms to federal drug forfeiture laws and that they're going to be limiting the circumstances under which law enforcement can be keeping the cash and cars of people suspected of drug offenses, but they are still allowing these drug task forces, these multi-jurisdictional drug task forces, to engage in precisely the same conduct they have in allowing law enforcement to keep 80% of all the proceeds seized. The results are predictable. People of color have been rounded up in mass for relatively minor, nonviolent drug offenses. One report by the Sentencing Project found that four out of five drug arrests were for simple possession, only one out of five for sales. Most people in state prison for drug offenses have no history of violence or even significant selling activity. And in fact, in the 1990s, the Clinton era, the period of the most dramatic expansion of our drug war, Nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests were for marijuana possession, a drug generally considered less harmful, less addictive than alcohol or tobacco, and at least as prevalent in middle-class white communities and on college campuses as it is in the hood. But by waging this drug war and by adopting this get-tough warlike mentality, only as it pertains to them, We've managed to create a vast new racial undercast in an astonishingly 
short period of time. Millions of people, overwhelmingly poor folks of color, are now saddled with criminal records and legally denied the very rights that were supposedly won in the civil rights movement. Well, where has the US Supreme Court been in all of this? Well, I spend a lot of time in my book detailing the ways in which the US Supreme Court has facilitated the rise of this new system. How it has eviscerated Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, granting the police license to stop, frisk, search just about anyone, anywhere, without a shred of evidence of criminal activity, no reasonable suspicion, no probable cause, nothing, as long as they get consent. And what's consent? Consent is when a police officer with one hand on his gun approaches a young man on the street and says, son, Ooh, you put your hands up in the air so I can frisk you. And the kid says, uh-huh. That young man has just waived his Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable searches and seizures. According to the U.S. Supreme Court, the police don't have to have a shred of evidence, no reasonable suspicion, no probable cause to engage in a search, an interrogation of that young man. But of course, these sweeps and these tactics are not used everywhere. They're not used on college campuses, though plenty of drugs can be found here. <laughs> no, they're not used everywhere. They're used in certain spaces, certain communities defined by race and class. And that the US Supreme Court has ruled that challenging racially biased law enforcement can legally be impossible. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that without direct evidence of racial bias, without some kind of admission of racial bias, of a police officer or a prosecutor, you can't even state a claim for racial bias in the criminal justice system today. The U.S. Supreme Court has closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias at every stage of the criminal justice process, from stops and searches to plea bargaining and sentencing. Those class action racial profiling cases I was filing 15 years ago can't even be filed in a court of law today. The doors have been closed. The U.S. Supreme Court has effectively immunized the system of mass incarceration from judicial scrutiny for racial bias, much in the same way that it once rallied to the defense of slavery or Jim Crow in their day. But of course, being swept into the system with little hope of challenging the practices or tactics that got you there is just the beginning of the odyssey for so many, because once you're swept in, you're ushered into a parallel social universe in which the basic civil and human rights that apply to others no longer apply to you. For the rest of your life, you must check that box on employment applications asking that dreaded question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And it doesn't matter if that felony happened a few weeks ago or 40 years ago. For the rest of your life, you're checking that box knowing full well your application's going straight to the trash. And that box can be found on housing applications student loan forms, welfare applications. Everywhere you find, the doors are closed. So what are you supposed to do? You get out of jail, you have no money, can't get a job, no housing, even public housing may well be closed to you. You may not even be able to qualify for food stamps. Can't get food, what are you supposed to do? 
Well, apparently what you're expected to do is to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars in fees, fines, court costs, and accumulated back child support. And in a growing number of states, you're actually expected to pay back the costs of your imprisonment. And paying back all the fees, fines, and court costs and accumulated back child support can be a condition of your probation or parole. And then get this, if you're one of the lucky few, the very few who actually manages to get a job upon your release, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished. 100% to pay back all those fees, fines, court costs, and accumulated back child support. What are folks supposed to do? When you step back and view the system as a whole, how it operates practically from cradle to grave, you have to ask yourself, what is this system designed to do? It seems designed, in my view, to just keep sending folks right back to prison, which is what, in fact, happens the vast majority of the time. About 70% of people released from prison return within a few years, and the majority of those who return do so in a matter of months because the challenges associated with mere survival on the outside are so immense. So what do we do? What do we do? Where do we go from here? What can be done now? Well, after years of myself walking the path of piecemeal policy reform and tinkering with this machine, working as a civil rights lawyer and advocate, I now finally understand exactly what Dr. King meant when he said, just months before his death, after Selma, after the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Acts had been passed, he told a reporter, quote, for years I labored with the idea of reforming the existing institutions of the society, a little change here, a little change there. Now I feel quite differently. I think you've got to have a reconstruction of the entire society, a revolution of values, end quote. Yes. Yes. Frustrated by white resistance to addressing in any meaningful way decaying ghettos, failing schools, structural joblessness, and crippling poverty, Dr. King said that America must be reborn. He said, quote, the dispossessed of this nation, the poor, both white and Negro, live in a cruelly unjust society. They must organize a revolution against that injustice not against the lives of their fellow citizens, but against the structures through which society is refusing to lift the load of poverty, end quote. And then when speaking to his staff at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1967, staff who were concerned that the civil rights movement had lost its steam and direction, King said, quote, for the past 12 years we've been in a reform movement, but after Selma and the Voting Rights Bill, we moved into a new era, which must be an era of revolution. We must see the great distinction between a reform movement and a revolutionary movement. We are called upon to raise certain basic questions about the whole society, end quote. Well, today I fear that many civil rights lawyers and advocates like myself have been stuck in a model of advocacy that King was determined to leave behind. Rather than challenging the basic structure of society and doing the hard work of movement building on behalf of poor people of all colors, we have been tempted too often by the opportunity of people of color to be included within the political and economic structure as is. And we have allowed ourselves to be willfully blind to the emergence of a new caste system, a system of social excommunication that has denied millions 
of poor people and people of color basic human dignity. The significance of this cannot be overstated for the failure to acknowledge the humanity and dignity of all persons has lurked at the root of every caste system. The common thread explains why in the 1780s, the British Society for the Abolition of Slavery adopted as its official seal a woodcut of a kneeling slave above a banner that read, quote, am I not a man and a brother? That symbol was followed more than 100 years later by signs worn around the necks of black sanitation workers during the poor people's campaign, answering the slave's question with the simple statement, I am a man. And yet here we are, decades later, with a black man in the White House and most Americans claiming to be colorblind, and thousands of people are holding signs eerily reminiscent of eras we supposedly left behind, reminding a forgetful nation that black lives matter. The fact that sign is necessary today in protest of yet another caste system suggests that the model of advocacy that has been employed for the past several decades is not, as King predicted, adequate to the task at hand. If we can agree that what is needed now at this critical juncture is not mere tinkering or tokenism, but as King insisted, more than 40 years ago, a radical restructuring of our society, then perhaps we can also agree that a radical restructuring of our approach to advocacy is in order as well. Of course, there are those who tell me that my newfound revolutionary spirit is misplaced, especially now that there is so much progress being made through traditional political channels to end mass incarceration in America. Don't you know that Rand Paul and Newt Gingrich are getting together with the Democrats to do something about mass incarceration. Well, that's nice and all well and good. But if you think they're going to take us to the promised land, <laughs> I suggest you think again. If you doubt that a full-fledged human rights movement isn't necessary today, is necessary today, consider this. If we were to return to the rates of incarceration that we had in the 1970s, before the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement kicked off, we would have to release four out of five people who are in prison today. Four out of five. More than a million people employed by the criminal justice system today would have to find a new line of work. Most new prison construction has occurred in predominantly white rural communities, communities that come to believe that prisons are a source of jobs and economic growth and stability. And very often prisons are advertised to these communities as offering way more benefits than they actually deliver. But nonetheless, these communities across America have come to believe that their survival, their livelihoods depend on these prisons and keeping them full. Those prisons across America would have to close down. Private prison companies now listed on the New York Stock Exchange would be forced into bankruptcy. This system is now so deeply rooted in our social, political, and economic structure, it's not going to just fade away, downsize out of sight, without an enormous upheaval, a fairly radical shift in our public consciousness. Now, I know that there's many who say, well, there's just no hope of any of that. There's no hope of ending mass incarceration. Just as many who were resigned to the old Jim Crow in the South would say, yeah, it's a shame, but that's just the way that it is. 
I find that so many people of all colors now view the millions cycling in and out of our prisons and jails as just an unfortunate but basically inalterable fact of American life. Well, I'm quite certain that Dr. King and Ella Baker and Sojourner Truth and the many, many others who risked their lives to end earlier systems of racial and social control would not be so easily deterred. So I believe we have got to be willing to pick up where they left off and commit ourselves to building a multiracial, multi-ethnic human rights movement on behalf of poor people of all colors. Yes. Yeah. Now, of course, we can continue to go down the road most traveled, the road of business and politics as usual, the path of reforming our institutions a little here, a little there, saying, well, this is more cost effective. It's cheaper for someone to wear a GPS monitor on their ankle for 12 years than go to prison for five. We can go down that path the path that Dr. King was determined to leave behind. Or we can choose a different path, the rocky, dangerous path that comes without a map. It's the path that's beckoning us again, thanks in large part to the courage of the young people in Ferguson who stood up when Michael Brown was shot down and who inspired thousands of people to wake up, get up, and march, march as they did right down the road in Baltimore today. Now, if we choose this rocky path, there will be no guidebook, no map, no instructions. We must go on faith. Faith that the slaves who sung songs of freedom in the cotton fields and the immigrants who are toiling in the fields today and those who risked their lives on freedom rides and who marched in Selma and those who faced the tear gas in Ferguson and who marched carrying signs saying Black Lives Matter on the streets of Baltimore today were not foolish to dream that America can be born again. We can and we must build a movement to end not only mass incarceration and mass deportation, but a broad-based, radical human rights movement that ends once and for all our nation's history and habit of creating caste-like systems in America. A movement for education, not incarceration, jobs, not jails. A movement to end all forms of legal discrimination against people released from prison. Discrimination that denies them basic human rights to work, to shelter, to food. A movement for voting rights for all, including those behind bars. And voting behind bars is common in other Western democracies. A movement that will end the war on drugs once and for all and shift to a public health model for dealing with drug abuse and drug addiction. Yes. Let it be a movement that will stand up to police unions and transform the police itself from warriors into peace officers, directly accountable to the communities they serve. Yes. And a movement that will ensure that every dollar saved from ending the wars that have been declared on poor communities of color, the wars on crime, the wars on drugs, will be invested back into the communities that have been harmed the most. Justice reinvestment, reparations for those who have been harmed.
a movement that abandons our purely punitive approach to dealing with violence and violent crimes and embraces a more restorative and rehabilitative approach, one that takes seriously the interests of the victim, the offender, and the community as a whole. A movement that is rooted in the awareness of the dignity and humanity of us all, no matter who we are, where we came from, or what we may have done. I hope and pray that this year, 2015, will be the year that King's revolution finally was born, the nonviolent revolution he prayed for and died for. Finally, the sleeping giant woke up, got up, and walked, and chose the road less traveled. And that, I believe historians one day will say, ultimately made all the difference. Thank you so much for having me here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. I am happy to answer questions and be in dialogue with you. So I believe there are microphones somewhere. Ms. Alexander, thank you for such an awe-inspiring and incredible book and lecture. Uh, a client of my mother's um, substance abuse and mental health facility once told her of the number of times he's been arrested and frisked and searched over and over, and it led him to believe that he was worthless and there's something just inherently wrong with him, and he was mentally ill, so he didn't really have a grasp on all these systemic issues. So could you please discuss a bit the role of mental illness and the symbiotic relationship between the uh, criminal justice system and drug abuse and mental illness? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Thank you. You know, not that long ago, our nation woke up to the harm that was caused by the mental institutions that existed in our nation and were horrified by the stories that were coming out and decided that the time had come to close these institutions. But for the most part, the people who needed mental health support and treatment were just turned out into the streets. And today, our prisons are the number one provider of mental health treatment and services in the country. And you find that people who have real mental health challenges are unable to receive the support and the treatment they desperately need in their communities and just find themselves cycling in and out of the criminal justice system, which itself is traumatizing. And one of the things I hope that we explore much more in the months and years to come is the desperate need for mental health support for people who have been in the system. You know, being, yeah, being arrested and put in a literal cage and treated as though you are less than human, strip searched, having people look up your anus, thrown into cells, placed often in solitary confinement, not just for days, but for weeks, months on end, 
because you violated some administrative rule. These are extraordinarily traumatizing experiences, and yet people who experience them get little or no mental health support at all. Um, I find that middle class, upper middle class folks take a lot of drugs. Prescription drugs that help them go to sleep, wake up, antidepressants, ADHD drugs. There are a lot, lots of drugs that are prescribed and lots, thousands and thousands of hours of therapy offered to people of relative means to help them just cope with the stress of daily life. And yet, for people who are living daily with questions of survival and who are traumatized in the system, little or no support is provided at all. Um, so thank you for raising that critically important question. And I think it also uh, reminds us that there is no good that comes from criminalizing a health problem. I mean, I think most of us would be, yes. You know, the idea of throwing alcoholics in prison and keeping them there for decades on end and throwing them back again and again if they go back to the bottle, you know, kind of shock our conscience. And yet we're perfectly willing to do that to poor folks and folks of color who happen to be addicted or abusing other substances. Um, and so I hope personally that we will um, begin to move in the direction of Portugal, which has decriminalized the simple possession of all drugs for personal use. Heroin, crack, you name it. If you're caught with a small amount of drugs consistent with personal use, you will not be put in a cage, you will not be branded a criminal, you will not acquire a criminal record, you will be provided an opportunity to have drug treatment, but you will not be criminalized. And Portugal reported after 10 years of its experiment decriminalizing all drugs that rates of drug addiction and drug abuse had declined quite markedly. And the numbers of people seeking drug treatment and help and support rose as drug use was no longer so stigmatized by being labeled criminal. Um, and drug-related crime declined because as there were fewer addicts, there was also fewer crimes committed to support addictions. Um, moving to a public health model makes sense, um, and it's vastly more humane than the wars that we have been waged now for decades. After 40 years of a drug war, rates of drug addiction and drug abuse remain largely unchanged in our country. The only thing we have accomplished is millions of people behind bars and cycling in and out um, and trapped in a perpetual undercast. So thank you so much for your question. Hi, my name is Gabby. Thank Hi. you so much for being here. Um, you mentioned earlier that we have to have a revolution that includes um, reforming, like mass incarceration, or not reforming, revolution, ending mass incarceration and mass deportation. And my question is, how do we build a broader coalition movement that recognizes that it's like the same mechanisms of the state that is monitoring and containing poor people of color? Yes. Thank you. Yes, well, if I had a quick answer to that. <laughs> no, I, I think the bottom line is it's very difficult and, and hard work. Um, 
in my view, the first step is awakening people. You know, unlike the old Jim Crow, this new caste-like system is out of sight, out of mind for most mainstream Americans. You know, the whites-only signs are gone. You know, the signs that used to alert everyone that a caste system was in operation, those signs are gone. And if this system doesn't directly affect you, if you yourself have not spent time behind bars, if you yourself don't feel the need to run from the police when you see them, if you don't have to check that box on employment applications and rental forms, uh, if you yourself don't have a family member who's stuck in immigrant detention and facing the prospect of being deported back to a country where they may be unsafe, if these systems don't directly affect you, it's easy to go your whole life and have no idea what's going on. You go to the mall and you see black people and white people shopping together. Everything looks good. Where's the problem? <laughs> We're fine. So I think the first step is helping to raise awareness, helping to make visible what is hidden in plain sight, raising consciousness. Um, but we've also got to get to work, right? And part of raising consciousness is bold, courageous advocacy that focuses attention on issues we prefer to ignore. And that is the beauty of what happened in Ferguson. You know, when young people, it's not that police killings are suddenly new. They're not even higher today, right now, than they were five years ago. It's, it's not suddenly worse. What happened is that a group of young people in Ferguson decided they had enough and that they were no longer going to accept business as usual. Um, and they stayed in the streets and kept organizing. These are folks who didn't have a history of organizing, who weren't trained organizers. They were making it up as they went. Um, and stayed in the streets and as a result helped to create a political climate in which the media is reporting on Freddie Gray today which would not have happened if those young people in Ferguson hadn't stood up and helped to inspire a nation to care. Um, so I think we have got to begin to muster our courage and look for opportunities to engage in the forms of advocacy that will force our communities and the nation as a whole to pay attention to and talk about and face realities that they would prefer to avoid. Um, I also think we have to get much more serious about just old-fashioned organizing. You know, I am in love with social media for the, its abilities to share information, articles, videos, um, to help people organize and show up at a demonstration. You can tweet out its location and people know where to go. That's beautiful. But we also have to be able to do the hard work of organizing and building capacity within communities to mobilize on a long-term basis. We do. You know, back during the civil rights movement, you know, in the 1960s, if you wanted to join the movement, you knew what to do. You knew where to go. Back then, the NAACP was a radical organization. It's hard to believe now. But it was. No, no, I just mean, it, you know, today the NAACP is a mainstream political player, and in some ways it's victims of its own success, right? But back then, it was a radical organization. In fact, you could be risking your life by joining the NAACP if the membership roles ever became public. But if you wanted to join the movement, you knew where to go. There was organizations you could join that you knew was at the vanguard of the movement to challenge the prevailing system of racial and social control. There was CORE, Congress on Racial Equality. You know, people don't talk about CORE much anymore, but CORE had 
chapters all over the country, including on college campuses, with the sole purpose of, you know, ending um, racial segregation and inequality in all of its forms. There was SNCC. There was Southern Christian Leadership Conference. There were organizations that you could join. Well, today there's lots of people doing amazing work in communities all over the country. But over and over again, when I go to public forums and speak about these issues, people stand up and say, what do I do? Where do I go? How can I connect myself to this movement? And so I think we have to think seriously about building organizations, new organizations today, um, that are connected to one another <laughs> um, and that have the capacity to engage in long-term, sustained grassroots organizing that are membership-based, membership-driven, deeply connected and rooted in the communities they serve so that we can move beyond protest politics, responding to crises when they occur, and instead create our own moments of crisis the way they did with the Montgomery bus boycott and the marches in Selma. Those were strategic crises created by advocates that wanted to force a conversation that otherwise So thank you. Hi, um, I'm Eric Asher. I am a junior here. Um, my original question was going to be about Ferguson, but then I realized my bigger question would be about um, how can I explain this all in a short amount of time like to my father or someone like that who doesn't understand the situation? Because I think the most important thing is that we need to some, some of, some of some, this whole, all of this information today is like perfect, but to condense it into like a, a talking points that everyone can share with people, that would be great. <laughs> well, I think that's an excellent project, and I hope someone here will volunteer to take it on. I'm actually I'm quite serious about that. <laughs> well, yeah, I wrote the book for that purpose, <laughs> to try to help open people's. But I think that, you know, your, your point is right. Not everyone's going to pick up and read a book from cover to cover um, like mine. And... Um, you know, I'm actually working with a number of filmmakers who are making films that are aimed at trying to reach audiences that won't necessarily read a book like this. I think, you know, it is a challenge that um, the truth about this system is difficult to reduce to a soundbite, which in many ways um, is why I appreciate so much the slogan, Black Lives Matter, um, because I think in the end it boils down to that. It boils down to the fact that we have created systems. You know, our criminal justice system is perhaps the most glaring example. We've created systems that devalue the lives of black and brown people. Um, and you can see its manifestation in all kinds of forms, whether it's how quickly the police pull the trigger while someone is running away, um, or whether they're viewed as a likely suspect and treated um, as though potentially disposable. You can see it in zero-tolerant school discipline policies that push um, kids out. Kids make mistakes. How could we possibly have a zero-tolerance policy in schools when what defines youth more than the fact that they have not grown up yet and their brains aren't fully formed and they're going to make a lot of mistakes? That's what it means to be young. Um, and to say to young people, you get zero chances, um, you know, how many of us um, have made zero mistakes in our own lives? So I think it's about um, trying to help people you care about, um, as well as others, see that some lives 
don't matter as much and that it plays out and manifests itself in many different ways, in many different forms, but perhaps most glaringly um, in our criminal justice system. Um, boy, there's just so much inside. Uh, first of all, I, I grew up like two miles away from where uh, Mr. Gray uh, was fatally injured. Mm. I've gone through that intersection hundreds of times in my life. When I read your book, The New Jim Crow, my oldest son was in prison. Mm. Um, but the reason I got up to ask a question is uh, about the probably our most famous incarcerated person, who is Mumia Abu-Jamal, mm. and uh, the way that he's being treated. Um, however you feel about whether he was guilty or innocent of the charges against him in 1981, uh, I'd simply like you to speak to the situation surrounding what uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal is going through right now. Yes, thank you so much. Um, my, my heart and prayers certainly go out to him and his family, and for those who might be unaware, Mumia has been experiencing a severe health crisis. Um, and all of the details surrounding his health crisis aren't fully known, in part because um, have not been fully disclosed to the public, and his own family has been treated miserably, denied access um, to him on a regular basis, and, um, you know, Many activists have started calling life imprisonment without parole as the other death penalty. And I think that is an apt term. Um, we tend to think of life imprisonment as a more humane alternative to the death penalty, but in reality, it is a death penalty. It's just a much slower and um, more agonizing one. Either way, you're dying behind bars. Um, and Mumia, over the years, has contributed such an enormous amount to our public understanding of the very issues we're discussing tonight. And I would encourage all of you to check out the many books that he's written um, that are, are, have illuminated my own understanding um, of these issues and I think have been such a profound resource for people behind bars and on the outside. And um, if and when he dies, it will be an extraordinary loss um, for all of us. Um, because no matter who you are or what you've done, if you are committed to sharing your truth and speaking for justice, as Mumia has, um, when that light is extinguished, it's a loss to us all. So thank you so much for raising that. Um, hello, thank you. Um, I, I have a highly specific question. Um, I am a uh, programmer and web developer, and I um, work with a group of futurists who believe that because we don't have a working reference point in history for an anti-racist or anti-sexist society, we must invent it, mm. and that the tools to do so exist currently. Um, 
I respect very much the skepticism of social networking that exists and as so there should be because those institutions, capitalist enterprises are run by, we'll say, individuals who are out of touch with the baseline human experience. And um, because of that, I want to cite a, a not yet existing example of how I believe technology can be mobilized from one perspective and ask you to provide an an analogy from yet another perspective of those whom you have worked with. Um, in this hypothetical, those who are written up and on the books and going to be imminently deported have an opportunity to reach out and aggregate data around their dependents, people within their community who are not on the books, not going to be deported, but going to be affected by the harm caused by the criminalization of migration in this case. My question to you is that while in a politically sensitive situation, visibility in this case can yield more opportunities potentially than cause harm for those who are going to be deported imminently anyway, is there an analogy for someone whose identity is criminalized, a felon, to get visibility and to organize? Is there a format or axis of how that information can be passed along that you see? I don't know. I think I'm not smart enough to follow exactly. Oh, no. oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Too specific, I, sorry. No, no, no. I, I, I'm not sure I, I entirely understand the kind of technology you're describing or how it could be used in a way that would be useful either in the immigrant hypothetical or in the um, example you'd like me to respond to. So I, I apologize if I'm um, too slow to quite grasp it all. <laughs> Thank you, though, and I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. Can we do one more over here? Okay. Um, hi, my name is Elizabeth. I'm a senior peace studies major here at Goucher. And uh, based on the applause and the reaction from the crowd, I would easily assume that we're all in support. And I'd like to ask for you, if you could make one request of everyone in this room to do one specific thing, what would you ask for us to do? Well, this is a, this is a thing. I well, thank you for that question. <laughs> Giving me the opportunity to tell people what to do is not something I... <laughs> turn away from lightly. But, um, you know, my own view is that there isn't one thing that we should all do um, besides asking ourselves, what, what can I do? Because each one of us has gifts, talents, interests, abilities that can be applied in the service of this movement for justice. And there is a need for artists for musicians, for poets, for lawyers, for organizers, for people who want to you know, be politically active and political leaders. There's a role for people who work in the public health profession. There is so much work that needs to be done in terms of shifting consciousness, our own, beginning with our own and checking our own biases and prejudice and levels of commitment. Are we really willing to take another step into the river and act with more courage and commitment than we have in the past or not? Um, but I really encourage people to get honest with themselves and say, 
am I really doing what I could to speak the truth, speak your own truth, stand for justice, do something to support these emerging movements? Um, and I think it can become overwhelming to feel like, oh, this is so big, so large, what can I possibly do? But very often when I have conversations with people, I find that, no, actually, they kind of already know that they would be really interested in starting a new study group, that they would be really interested in getting involved in a particular campaign, that they're really passionate around drug policy reform or felon disenfranchisement, or what they really want to be involved in is building an underground railroad for people released from prison so they can provide critically needed support, help finding shelter and food and employment. There's so many ways. Um, I think the key is for us to get very honest about how serious are we and what are we willing to do? So I would just ask all of us to ask that question and then come up with one thing you are willing to do that you didn't do yesterday or last year that you're willing to do tomorrow and take that one step and also to try to link up with other people who are willing to do that work with you. Um, you know, the old saying, you know, just takes a few committed citizens or people to change the world. That's the only thing that ever has and always will. That's true. Um, and it's been relatively small groups of people who have come together, whether it was the Freedom Riders back in the 60s, um, or, you know, artists today who come together and decide we're going to collectively do something more bold, more courageous, and with more commitment than we have before. Um, and the aggregate of that can be powerful. So thank you so much for that question. Let's hear it one more time for Michelle Alexander. Thank you very much.